everyone. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, also covering the team at the Athletic Canucks Talk, brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, We have a champion, a Stanley Cup champion. Congrats to the Vegas Golden Knights in just about the most anticlimactic fashion. You could possibly imagine a that that game a game that basically didn't exist for the final half of it. That game needed the crusty burglar kid like the stop stop he's already dead. <laughs> About midway through the second period, once Bobrovsky started coughing rebounds out into the slot, which he hasn't done all postseason, to his credit, uh, that was that was a walk. Yeah, a walk. Uh, some, hey, uh, somebody was saying it was good take be a, a by me, huh? Woo! Well, you know, and I'm I'm additionally disappointed because I felt like my feel on this Golden Knights Florida series had been pretty good. Like yeah. I, I was really confident that Vegas was the better team. Um, you know, after seeing games one and two, like I think I originally had Vegas in seven, but after seeing Vegas in games one and two, and and sort of expecting them to hold serve, I, I was pretty confident about the Panthers in game three. And mm-hmm. I was also super confident that Vegas would dominate game four. And even though, you know, the scoreline got close late, I think that was right. Mm-hmm. So I felt like I had good feel all series. And then, yeah, game five is going to be a close, nervy, grinded out game. <laughs> it's going to be a one goal game one way or the other. And a bounce is going to decide it. Nope, not even close. Most lopsided Stanley Cup elimination game in what? Since 1991. So in yeah. <laughs> 30 years yeah and uh what what an inglorious way for a really memorable cool panthers run to end it's tough and man did sergey bobrovsky remind everybody that anyone who was keen or even willing to consider relitigating his contract as the single worst one in the nhl um you know out to lunch um out i don't know who you're talking about uh because it wasn't me i didn't say that i didn't you were open to it (laughs) i said if if they win the cup if they won the cup behind him playing really great. Then you do it every time because, of course, you do because flags no, fly forever. You still don't. The problem is, is if you want a goalie to get hot for two and a half weeks, you can get him for a fourth round pick. Vegas did it. You, like the 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 play will extremely well for two and a half weeks. Goalie is just about any goalie <laughs> who's NHL level. All I'm saying is when you, you pay ten you don't, million, you don't turn around and regret the contract. If he leads you on a Stanley Cup run, of course you don't. Sorry, that contract's been regretted since the moment it got signed. Guy's been like 904, 905 every year, and he's lost it's, his job to three journeymen I, I, in I've four years. I've never disputed any of that. At, at a $40 neither million here dollar nor there. Uh, I will say, I didn't. A disaster contract. I don't think that I said it. would have been a disaster it, uh, regardless of if they'd won. I don't think I said it on the show yesterday, but I think on Monday I said I was concerned that there could be a little the sensation of like the air going out of the balloon for the Panthers. And I feel like that was a good take with Matthew Kachuk not suiting up. It's especially, like, yeah, that's tough. And it almost, I don't want to say like he has a broken. Well, they had a good whatever, start so. though. The Panthers had a good start. Like for five minutes, they kind of threw their best punch and then they just knew what the score was. Yeah. And then, and then obviously Vegas gets two pretty quick goals, one shorthanded and that was kind of all she wrote. Yeah, exactly. And I just feel like without Kachuk in the lineup, they, they're, in the back of your mind, as much as you're fighting, as much as you're pushing, you kind of know we don't have it. Like, and I think you could see that they didn't have it in that game. Yeah, they didn't have it in the series. It's too bad that Kachuk ends up 
with a broken sternum as sort of an exclamation point on what was and what should remain and what will be remembered, not just as a star turn, um, the rise of probably the NHL's like highest profile player right now, to mm-hmm. be totally honest with you, from a, from a crossover into the cultural zeitgeist perspective, it's like Kachuk's neck and neck with McDavid, like that's his company now. Um, but also this was just one of the great individual clutch playoff oh, runs yeah. by any individual player, maybe ever. And so for that to end with him being unable to contribute as his team is eliminated, I mean, there's there's something really bitter about that. I, I feel terrible for him and, and the Panthers. But at the end of the day, and I got winners and losers up at the Athletic, plug, 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 um, that you can go check out. Like, Kachuk's one of the winners. But also the 100%. Florida Panthers organization, man. Like, you know, there was that clip of the r- sports reporter fighting off that fan who yes. wanted to ruin their live shot. Yep. And obviously, kudos to that reporter and, like, don't be that guy. But the old PR guy in me was like, wow, F- Channel 4 is at the, at the game? That's unbelievable. They're going live from the game? In Vegas, too, wasn't it? In, in yeah, Vegas. They traveled, they traveled for it. For it. Yeah. I mean, like, that's one of those soft things. Like, the Panthers selling out the lower bowl of an arena that, you know, one thing the Panthers always get you know guff for is how empty their arena is but what people mm-hmm. don't realize is that arena can sit like 25k like it's the biggest no, hot, it's the biggest arena in the league mm-hmm. they sold out the lower bowl for a watch party and like 10,000 people in the building for a watch party it's unbelievable like those scenes uh that that genuine outpouring of of spontaneous public support the resonance of hockey in south florida like you know i spent years of my life working toward that to see it happen, even even from as far away as we are here, like uh, remarkable scenes. What a great run for that team! Really um, happy for everyone down there. Yeah, it was. I I am disappointed that it wasn't more of an entertaining and a, a more closely contested final when it comes right down to it, right? And actually, the playoffs as a whole after the first round were not particularly great. There was like one close series. Well, and really. even and even that was like kind of a fake close series. Yeah, you know, like honestly, I'd say the closest series after the first round was Edmonton Vegas. That's probably true, yeah. You know, and and by the way, I didn't I didn't have time or I didn't have space to include them. Like I didn't want to write four thousand words. But one of the playoff winners that I didn't include, the Pacific Division. A hundred percent. Like well, not only were they the only division to send three teams to the second round, but Edmonton was the only team mm-hmm. that looked like they were in Vegas's weight class at all. Right? Like, I think there's a real chance that that Western Conference final or sorry that that Pacific Division final Western Conference semis was the real was the real final like i i really do sort of look back on this and think those were the two best teams in the playoffs well, like do you, i don't think edmonton would have had any trouble with dallas do you want to uh this pivots into one of the interesting things and something we've been uh, excited to look at which is the early stanley cup odds for next season yeah. from uh, bet mgm and well sorry let's let's use our friends at play now plug 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 okay, <laughs> okay. well the only thing is with, with play now because they know they're getting so many bets on the canucks right it can distort things and other canadians yeah but so i'm kind of trying to go for the least i, I get know, it i get it their tiers though the most neutral so i don't know about bet mgm but i've been checking the vegas average yeah. so i use okay. vegas insider and i check the vegas average and for the most part, what I've seen is that the Canucks are kind of ensconced in this little tier with Washington, uh, St. Louis, Detroit. And that's kind of like this little tier break where a lot of people have the Canucks below 
Detroit, St. Louis, and ahead of Washington at 55 to 1. That's sort of been the Vegas average. What does MGM have? So MGM right now has all of these teams at 51 to 1. The Red Wings, hold on. Not not the same teams that you listed, though, right? It's a little different. The Red Wings, the Islanders, the Kraken the Canucks and the Jets all at 51 to 1. Oh wow. Then they have the Blues <laughs> are, and the Caps down unbe- at 67. Those are unbelievably good odds for a Kraken team that well, made it to the second round my, and has is, 20 million in cap space. This is my biggest takeaway is that Vegas is extremely low on the Kraken. Like yeah. shockingly low on the Kraken given well, what you just laid out. But if you look up and down like one one bit of softness to exploit in this market and it's not an easy market to exploit because of the fact that the team actually has to emerge as the Stanley Cup winner, right? Like <laughs> yes. like yes. you'd be better off if there were playoff odds, but there is some softness in this marketplace because, like, Boston's one of the favorites, mm-hmm. right? Um, Boston's one of the favorites. Uh, you know, Toronto's one of the favorites. The New York Rangers are highly ranked. Um, I don't know that the – like, I don't know that the benefit of cap flexibility is properly priced into this market yet, right? So that's why, like, the Carolina Hurricanes at 13-1, to 1, according to play now anyway. I don't know what they are yeah, on same, MGM. same thing at MGM, yeah. Um, you know, that's a team with almost 30 million in cap space and and only Jordan Stahl to extend. Like, to me, if you're a conference finalist and you have 30 million in cap space, um, you know, that's appealing. That's that's the profile. <laughs> so, like, for me, the cap space available to the Kraken should put them in a different tier. And and so our friends on play now, anyway, have the Kraken in a different tier alongside the Buffalo Sabres at 41 to 1. By the way, the Buffalo Sabres are a really interesting long shot pick. Um, me and Dimitri are doing like a whole episode on this on the PDO cast after this, by the way. So stay tuned for that. We'll get deeper into it. The Canucks on play now are in the same tier as the Blues and the Capitals and the Jets. Which, man, that is a like the Jets are also I've seen the Jets as high as 33 to one. And it's like, come on, guys, that's wild. The Jets do not belong in a tier with the, you know, the likes of the L.A. Kings and the Wild and the and the Pittsburgh Penguins. That's preposterous. But especially given the uncertainty around that team. But the Canucks sort of exist in this tier with the Blues and the Caps. They're 61 to 1 at Play Now Sports. Mm-hmm. So a far be- far better price at our friends yes, at Play Now Sports uh, or at least Satyar Shah's friends at Play Now Sports. <laughs> um, you know, man make sure to price shop like Ruby. <laughs> you know Ruby's price shopping. Absolutely. <laughs> uh sorry. <laughs> Um, the, uh, <laughs> I love the idea of incredible Ruby. reference. I love the idea of Ruby price shopping. Yes, incredible makes reference. me laugh so hard. Um, sorry, but, but to the point, no, the point I was, that I was pivoting off of, right. Is the strength of the Pacific division as reflected in these odds, because Vegas, despite winning the Stanley cup are not even, they don't even have the best odds in their own division next year. That goes to the Edmonton Oilers, right. Who are as high as second. Uh, in terms of odds. Now, you can fade that if you want. You can you can disagree with that. But I think what you see is the odds makers giving a lot of respect to the Pacific Division. Between Edmonton and Vegas in the clear-cut first tier yep. of contenders, right? Like the favorites. Part, or, or, you know, part of a group of favorites. And then even LA and the Calgary Flames yeah. in that like 25 to 1-ish range yeah right and and well and and there's some there's some prices where you'll see the kraken in that range as well like a lot of books uh you know 365 for example has the kraken very much at like 35 to 1 where the calgary flames are 30 to 1 right so 
the Kraken in most most places I've seen, not BetMGM, obviously. So if you uh, like, or and if you like the Kraken, go to, go, <laughs> go to go Bet, check out BetMGM. Go to BetMGM. Shop like Ruby. Um, but the yeah. So what what I really like to do with this is to think of it in relative terms, at least in terms of a Canucks analysis from mm-hmm. a Canucks analysis standpoint, because it's like I don't recommend you spend a dime on betting a Vancouver Canucks future like to win the cup. If you like this team's chances and think the market is undervaluing them, like wait till playoff odds come out or wait right. till over-unders come out, there are markets where you're far more likely to actually return something if you're right about this team, about this team's like bull case. Yeah. Which, you know, I have a little bit of a fade on the Canucks on at this point, right? Like I, I won't be shocked if they make the playoffs. I sort of rate them like going into this offseason somewhere between the – you know, 18th and 22nd best team on true talent. I think there's more downward mobility there given their cap situation than there is upward mobility. So that would make me pretty hesitant to bet some of these futures before the offseason moves start. Although, mm. A, I don't bet on hockey and B, those futures don't tend to become available until a little bit later in the summer anyway. And that's for a reason. The market would be too soft um, if they were unveiled today. The Canucks, though... Like, there are a couple things that I think are worth looking into here. One is, if you look at sort of the Vegas average, the Canucks are priced out as the 12th best team in the Western Conference and the 5th best team in the Pacific Division. Now, there are public teams. The Edmonton Oilers are a bit of a public team because of the impact of McDavid. The Golden Knights are are a bit of a public team given that they're the reigning Stanley Cup champions, and congratulations to them. And... Uh, you know, uh, the guys with BC connections in that organization. Um, you know, t- uh, also Tom Porosaka, the uh, ex general com manager, uh, who, who I used to work with a bit at the Nation Network and is, and is a great guy. Anyway, um, George McPhee, too, former Canucks AGM. Mm-hmm. I still think it's instructive in telling you objectively, like, this is an objective data point from bookmakers who have real skin in the game on how they rate teams right now going into this offseason. And the fact that the Canucks are 24th in the league, 12th in the West, and 5th in their own division, to me, matters a lot, especially given how this team is poised, how this team is discussed locally, the stakes that we're talking about in terms of them going back into the playoffs. And and to me, this remains one of the big lessons from how the 2021-2022 campaign went so deeply off the rails. Like, ownership came out after firing Jim Benning and Travis Green, and we're like, we are shocked yeah. by what's happened. And the team had been favored in, like, 7 of 25 games. Like, ignore the objective data at your peril. The market is telling you, Vegas is telling you strongly, in fact, Vegas is telling you more strongly than me. Like I am higher on the Canucks than their perch in this books. I think I think they're you know somewhere between eighteen and twenty two mm-hmm. going into this off season. Vegas is lower on them than than that. Vegas sees them as a Washington Capitals, Detroit Red Wings, Nashville Predators quality team or below. Like that's the company. That, that Vegas is sort of putting them in in terms of assessing their risk of actually having to pay out should these teams win the Stanley Cup um, next season. To me, anyway, that's like instructive 
in terms of how this organization, like, I'm not saying the organization should look at the opening odds and be like, well, we're cooked. And let that, yeah. Tear it down. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, like, as a gut check, right? You should consider this team, if you're Canucks management, if you're Canucks ownership, if you're anyone in a decision of power, or if you're just a supporter, you know, trying to set your expectations to a reasonable point. Our starting point in reading this, not to mention the results of the last three years, should be the Canucks are not a true talent playoff team today. They'll need to get better Mm -hmm. to make it. And as we've discussed, their routes to do so are, are limited, which has massive implications in terms of what this summer should look like in terms of how conservative this organization should be, in terms of what the priorities should be and whether or not they should be short-term priorities, given that, I mean, what? You have, like, the perfect offseason, and you're going to be priced out, like, maybe maybe if the Calgary Flames sell Hannafin and Backlund and a bunch of other pieces, maybe you're fourth in the Pacific and, you know, 18th if, if the Nashville Predators sell aggressively and Vegas pans Detroit's offseason moves and on and on. Yeah. Like, it's a tough spot to be in and reflects the mess. And make no mistake, that's what it is that yeah, this organization's in right now. And it's the strength of the Pacific Division, really. When we just zoom in to, like, next season, right, and how to navigate it and less about the, you know, the long-term strategy and all of that, which is important, too. And I don't want to, you know, hand wave that away. But if we're just looking at next season, the thing that really stands out to me is the strength of the Pacific Division, right? As I said, you know, two legit, no doubt about it, Stanley Cup contenders per these odds in Vegas, in Edmonton, two other pretty well-regarded teams in LA and Calgary. We talked a little bit earlier this week about Calgary being a bit of a wild card, right? Could they sell Noah Hannafin? Could they do some other things that uh, that weakens their position? They could, but I think what you're seeing in these odds is that they're starting from a pretty strong roster still, despite missing the playoffs last year. You look at that, and there's still a lot of talent. They can still control play. They can still do a lot of things right. And with LA, you know, I, I look at that as a team that, is obviously going to be extremely motivated to get better, right? Having gone out in the first round of the playoffs the last couple of years, knowing that to get through their division, they're going to have to go through Edmonton and Vegas, right? Or at least one of those teams, knowing that they have to get up to that level. I think LA is going to be extremely motivated to improve. And then if they do that, then you're talking about potentially three legit Stanley Cup contenders in the division, and things get very, very difficult. I can see some weakness in the Central, right? I could see maybe, you know, the odds being a little bit too high on Winnipeg, maybe too high on Nashville. Oh, sorry, they're definitely too high on Winnipeg. You know what I mean? So like, I And Nashville's see... telegraphing what they're going to do. Like Exactly. So I could see the Canucks moving up above those teams pretty easily, but it doesn't matter if you're sixth in the Pacific. You know what I mean? Like you can you can finish above a bunch right. of teams in the Central. Sorry, and I kept saying they were fifth in the Pacific. They're sixth in the. They're Pacific. sixth in the yeah, Pacific. Sorry. Now again, I'm a lot of a errors lot and of omissions. Places, a lot of places do have them tied with the Kraken. For take that for what it's worth, right? A, a certain softness that people, for whatever reason, the books see in the Seattle Kraken, but like in either in a tie for fifth or in sixth in the Pacific. Yeah, and that I, that's I, I mean I that's mean, the starting point for me. That's a really tough spot to be to be in. If uh, if like. The head-to-head market opens. Like, will this team outperform this team? And the Kraken are even money to outperform the Canucks? Like, jump on that. Jump on that immediately. 
But anyways, I mean, I think that's the kind of, that's the big takeaway for me looking at the the odds. It's just that the Pacific Division is probably going to be really difficult, both at the top and in the fight for the playoffs. And yeah, you know, you'll see San Jose and Anaheim down at the very bottom. But guess what? Most divisions have a couple of bottom feeders. You know what I mean? Chicago and Arizona. Go to go to the other divisions, right? I know Columbus improved, but you know who's not buying Columbus improvements? Vegas. Vegas, no. Vegas is extremely not They're buying They're out. It. They are out on Columbus. The Yeah, and the last thing is, the last thing to keep in mind, like there's a real route to five Pacific teams making the playoffs next year. You know. Oh, 100%. Like I don't, I don't have much doubt about Dallas, Colorado, and uh, Minnesota mm-hmm. as playoff caliber teams, even given Minnesota's you know, constant cap crunch. I really do think that there's a, a pretty high probability that a Lambos or a Rossi type comes in and makes an impact for them next season or, or even a Beckman. But outside of outside of that, right? Like, I, I don't think there's a single Central Division team that, that I know is better than the Canucks. Well, it's just the – it's you look at the the next three teams in that division, right? St. Louis, Nashville, Winnipeg, all are in either positions where, as you say, Nashville is telegraphing what they want to do, and it's probably take a step back. You know, I will say though, or they're in extremely difficult positions. I will say like though, Winnipeg, Nashville played so well once they went really young, and we're just like the Evangelista mm-hmm. Th- Thomas Nowak show late in the year with like that group of guys. Uh, Cody Glass played really well, like. That that group of guys between the ages of like twenty three and twenty six all kind of getting their first shot and plum opportunities, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, they're a faster team. They work really hard. There's actually some offensive skill there. <laughs> like they almost looked like a misfits. Mm. They almost looked like a retro misfits side. Uh, I think there's a world where Nashville's imposing, but that world is almost a world in which they move off of like most of their non defenseman well, vets. And I also think like the upside. Like where they make a bunch of of sort of future trades with their valuable assets, but then use those assets not to make more picks or accumulate more pieces, but to create cap flexibility by mm. moving off to Shane Do- uh, Johansson, Johansson types. Yeah. Like really clearing the decks aggressively. Um, you know, if it's Soros, Yossi and that defense core for the most part, like that Lozon group and Barry and on and on, and that young group of forwards, like – I'm not going to pick them to make the playoffs, but I'm going to pick them to be an annoying opponent. I think night. that that's what I see more than like a, a hundred point team is like, but with an upside, annoying man. ninety point. But team. with upside, you know I mean? like I love those. I love those workmen like more than the some of their parts teams. I feel like those are the teams that can get momentum and and really surprise. Uh, especially in a sport like hockey. Uh, we will talk to our guy, Sean Gentilly of The Athletic, wrap up the Stanley Cup final, look ahead to the offseason with Sean. That's coming up next. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. 
Gentile.com. Uh, Sean Gentile, our pal from The Athletic, is going to join us here momentarily. And in fact, we have Sean on the line right now. Sean, thanks as always for doing this, man. How are you? Oh, it's good. We're jumping right in. We're There's jumping like right no in. no runtime at all. I love it. <laughs> well, I was just like finishing my reads and stuff, and the producer said he's on the line. So why why waste it's time? Like, why waste any time? I, we may as well get right to you. It's a huge pet peeve of mine whenever you, you like wait to do hits and there's like four minutes where you hear traffic and weather and whatever else. Like, I don't care. Usually don't on care. our show, it's like put me to put, put me to work. Yeah, usually on our show, it's like three minutes of us debating the stupidest thing you've ever heard, and while the guy like, sits patiently that. on the line, I'll, I'll take I'll take that over you know local arteries for for a city that I don't live in. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, let's get right into it. So Vegas wins the Stanley Cup in, uh, as I said off the top of the show, pretty much the most anticlimactic fashion I could imagine. A 9-3 blowout. Wasn't close for almost half the game. Uh, you're, you're just immediate kind of big picture takeaways from from last night and from Vegas lifting the cup. I think a lot of them are similar to a certain piece that I saw run on The Athletic this morning. <laughs> some, of, some of the winners some of the winners and losers, you know, I, I think it's, uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a proof of concept thing for the league in, in Vegas and, and also the way that Vegas went about their business over the last, you know, three, four, five years, which was uh, controversial at times, certainly coming into this season, you know, with the, some of the shuffling that they've done, I think there was some understandable, you know, pressure on that group to, to get it done because of the amount of capital and because of the amount of uh, shuffling that they've, that, that they did since, since 2017. So that's kind of, that's the biggest thing for me. It's a, it's a big win for the league, you know, to, to have that team in that market find that level of success so quickly, but also like on a little bit of a more granular level, it's, it's a major level of uh of of uh, justification and and, uh, and validation for for George McPhee and Kelly McCrimmon because there because there were some tough questions that were starting to swirl around them and you know kudos to them it worked. Do none of the Vegas Golden Knights have Instagram or anything like? Why have I seen so few Stanley Cup Vegas Strip <laughs> debauchery videos this morning? It's like honestly one of the things I'm most disappointed in in a long time hockey wise. I feel like I feel like it's sort of that's like a very like Vegas local thing though, right? Like right. they live there, so they're like <laughs> they, they like went to like, the suburbs yeah. and had like a had like a quiet party with their families at the oh, golf club. I I guarantee you guys that they're <laughs> that they're out that they were just like out in Henderson, you know, <laughs> getting drunk in someone's backyard or whatever. They're not going to be uh, hanging from chandeliers in the Cosmopolitan or, or something. Those guys are. Those guys are local. They know how to, they know how to do it. Like we got a week, we got the weekend coming up. We got a whole summer's worth of stuff. I'm not surprised to see that, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't blow their wad on night one. These guys did. These guys know what they're doing. They're veterans of the Vegas process. I wonder if they're too old too. It's not like this team uh-huh. was like ELC laden. You know, it's not like there was like a 23 year old on this team that we could like rely on. To you know, post yeah, some questionable. Totally. These guys are all, you know, Mark Stone's, Mark Stone's, Mark Stone's thirty-one, and he looks forty-one. Like he's, he's got a bad back. He just wants to, <laughs> he just wants to go home. He just wants to go home and chill like the rest of us washed up dudes at the end of all, the, at the end of that sort of thing. Mark Mark Stone, like us, does that like thing where you grab your pockets and like pull up twice really quickly before bending over. 
<laughs> yeah, he's, he's got, yeah right. He's got the he's got the the cash limit too on on, on the ATM withdrawal from his from his wife or whatever. He's got to got to run stuff past the boss if he if, if he wants to spend any more cash at the at, at the table. He's a smart man. Gentile, you're a smart guy, so I want to get your take on this. A lot of pressure. Okay. I'm putting putting a lot of pressure on you. The Vegas Golden Knights exceeded the salary cap by twenty million. Problem. Yep. Or absurd posturing. I don't think it's a. I I I've like fully flipped over to be like there's no no shame in the game. Like those guys are pulling the levers that they're allowed to pull. Um, it is absurd <laughs> on some level. But what's absurd? What's more absurd to me is that uh, league revenues are still low enough to the point where you know it's it's a or, or and the system is so screwed up because of the revenue deficit and escrow and all that stuff where, you know, that, that that's, it's that Vegas is like, yeah, it's the most egregious example, but you know, they're not the exception to the rule either. There's so many teams that are forced that, that are, you know, that, that are doing this and, and, and over it to, to that, you know, to, to similar ends that I, it's tough for me to get, get all that mad about it. So I just say kudos, man. Like you guys, those guys are doing, doing what they can do they're you know existing in the system that you know that's provided to them and uh they're doing it better than anybody else well and I, go. I think you know the people and the fans who say like oh why isn't the league doing anything about this i think there's a, a misunderstanding about what the salary cap is for from mm-hmm. the league's perspective right the salary cap despite what they might say it has nothing to do with you know encouraging a, a, a level playing field or parity in the league it's all about just keeping players salaries down and this doesn't affect mm-hmm. that, right? It's not adding new money into the system. Maybe it gives Vegas an advantage, but it doesn't actually get to the heart of why the league wants the stamp, uh, the uh, salary cap. And I think that's maybe a big misunderstanding and a disconnect or, and why people are complaining about it. A hundred percent. That's the thing that's always lost. It's not a money in money out situation, right? So yeah. as long as, as long as uh, the, the big number is the same, you know, if, it, if this stuff gets shuffled around and, and shelved and moved and, and whatever else, then the league couldn't care less, you know? So there's a reason, and there's a reason that the league doesn't do anything about it because we've, we've, we've seen it so many times in the past when it's something that happens that's detrimental to the league, like back diving contracts, long tail contracts, the Ilya Kovalchuk set up, let's call it, you know, they can jump in and, and act unilaterally pretty fast. It's something that they decide that they want to change. And there's a reason that, you know, that, that we haven't seen that with that particular brand of cap circumvention. It's because it doesn't affect the league until so the league does not care. Sean, one of the most stressful two month stretches of my life was when the Vegas Golden Knights went to the Stanley Cup final the first time in their inaugural season when I was the head of PR for the Florida Panthers. Um, <laughs> last night, Riley Smith scores the game winning goal. Jonathan Marcheseau wins the Conn Smythe. Sergei Bobrovsky allows eight goals against. Pretend you were me five years ago. How would you spin it? This is not a joke. You you were like the one of the first people I thought of when I was watching the. I'm watching the. I'm watching the. You know the cup passes and it goes from Riley Smith to Marcheseau. I'm just like, oh boy, Drancer. Um. Well, well, I'm, hey, I'm not there anymore. I was loving it. <laughs> well, I know that, but that's what I mean. Like I see, I see those guys, and, and, that, and that is still, you know, that's still like my first reaction when I see stuff happening involving the misfits or involving, 
the the Panthers, even vis-a-vis the, the the Golden Knights. I mean, you're, you still you still always always come to mind because I do think of you know the hoops you had to jump through back in 2017. How do how how do you spin that? I don't know. You like I think I think you can start the cycle and, and say that you know this is the this is the this is probably in, in some regards you know I don't know if you can count on that kind of performance from Bobrovsky for the next few years, but you can spin it forward and say like there's good things coming for for Florida. You know the uh, the the cap situation for them is a lot better moving mm. moving forward than it was this past year. You know so they they're going to have more money and more opportunity to build around Kachuk and whoever else if it, if they want to. This seems like it could be the start of something. You know even though there is that big asterisk because they're not going to get you know, Ken Dryden level goaltending from, from Sergei Bobrovsky odds are for, for three more rounds next, next season. But, you know, you can, you can, uh, you, you can spin cycle that one too and just focus on the positive. Cause there is a lot to like about that team. Right. Well, and I mean, I will say just on the question of how to spin it from Florida's perspective, it's a new front office there. Right. And what do new front offices love more than pointing at the mistakes of old front offices. So in some ways it's a gift for them. It's like, yeah, see, see how, see what the last guys did. Now we're in charge, and we're going to make it all better. And we would have gotten away with it, too, if not for that dastardly former GM. <laughs> well, I mean, like, Zito did kind of do that coming into this year. He said it, you know, when when they were struggling around the trade deadline and when they were really capped out. He kind of framed it as, like, not that this was a punt year for them necessarily, but, like, they knew that there was going to be a little bit of a step back. Like, we've already seen that framing from from the org over the last couple months. And I think to some extent it's true. So they go on a run, they, you know, impress everybody dramatically over the last couple months. And now they can focus on, you know, moving on from Patrick Hornquist and finding, finding money elsewhere and really going out and improving around the margins in a way that they couldn't last year. Like they have the big pieces set. It's all well and good. They were unable to, you know, maybe fix some stuff at, at, at the bottom of their defensive group, say last over the, over the summer. Well, that's not going to, that's going to be less of an issue. Now they're going to have a little bit more money to spend. They're going to have a little bit more wiggle room, maybe going into the season. And I think that's like probably the, that's probably the most future focus, you know, positive way to spin it. And I think there's a lot of truth to it. Sean, what do you make of the Vegas fans applauding Gary Bettman last night? I think they should have done it. Like, who, uh, what franchise, what fan base should, like, Arizona should be more grateful <laughs> to Gary than them? Arizona. Like, he's not, he's, not, uh, I guess it is. True. But, like, we're, <laughs> come on. we're never going to see uh, Clayton Keller <laughs> take, a, take, take, a, take a Stanley Cup and yeah, maybe for St. In, Louis. In, the temp, in the Tempe Arena or whatever. That's, <laughs> that's not going to happen. They, they, they owe that dude everything. He, he, he put a team there. He gift wrapped. He helped gift wrap them a, a pretty solid one, and it just happened. You know, it's six years ago. Like, if they would have had to wait another ten years, I'm sure we would have seen him seen him get booed. But man, there's, he's never done wrong by the people in Vegas. They should cheer the guy. He's a conquering hero. Welcome they, back, Gary. They they booed him. The they booed him the last time the cup was awarded there, though. <laughs> They lost. Like whatever, <laughs> they win. All, every, everything comes out in the wash whenever, uh, whenever you get the dub. I think that I think that's what we saw on display last night. See, I felt like I was like, man, Vegas. I've defended you. <laughs> I've defended you as a fan base. I've yeah. defended the expansion rules. 
You did such a good job last time being part of the community of hockey fans. I, I yeah. thought that, I thought that was disgraceful. I think they were just they were too distracted. This is like this is like oh, Sunbelt hockey actually doesn't get it, right? Like, <laughs> whatever. We, and it's we, like it's fair we to intended you. We vouch for you. It's fair to boo Gary Bettman generally, but like also it's part of the show. Like I really do feel ripped off when he when we don't get to see him parry the like, crowd. Just wait for the draft. It's 100%. better. It's better at the draft, anyways. Nashville, yeah. yeah, Nashville will boo them. Yeah, they will. They'll they better. They know. They know what's up. In like Montreal brought they've it. And around, it was awesome. They've been around long enough. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like like Nashville were like in the the, uh, the third decade of them of them being a part of it. Like they're they're steeped in it. It hasn't been long enough for for Vegas to figure it out. It was bizarre seeing Gary react to tears last night. I'll say that much. <laughs> yeah, I think I think he was as confused as us. He's he's not as good at it. He's not as good at it. Like he's because he, he yeah you know why because practice makes yeah he's never been cheered in his life before. Uh, we're talking Stanley Cup final of Sean Gentile of the Athletic here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet six fifty. So uh, lots of talk about Vegas's size on the uh, on the blue line in this playoffs and just in general I would say also. But the smallest player on the team, the shortest anyways, Jonathan Marchessault wins the Conn Smythe. Will that do anything to kind of derail hockey GMs, NHL GMs from doubling down and pointing to the Vegas Golden Knights and saying, see, see, you need to have those big, tough players in the playoffs? I don't think so. I don't think so, that, at least with regards to, to the defenseman, it won't. Like, that's the fact that Jonathan March is a winger is what gives him plausible deniability. They can say, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 you can have you can have the 5'9", five, 5'10 five, guy, you know, in there. He's he's a scrappy dude. March so as well. Oh, yeah. so you, you can say like, yeah, yeah. He he plays he plays the right way. He plays at a little bit of an edge. Scores a bunch of goals. Also, he's a forward. Like whatever. What we need to do is 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 look at is look at how tall how tall the defensemen are. Like they're going to be able to compartmentalize that in a very in a very real way. And again, in, in that piece that I read by a, an unnamed author on the Athletic this morning, I think they made a good point in saying like scott mayfield you know come on down like he's, he's gonna get the, those guys like that are gonna get the recognition that maybe they haven't gotten in in the past all because of this like dudes are gonna cash in because it's a copycat league and we just watch a bunch of tall defensemen you know play well on, on their way to a stanley cup scott mayfield five times 5.5 what a world we live in <laughs> You, you People t- are going to be shocked, and they shouldn't be. It's no, happen. over or under on that? Uh, I'll go. I'll go over on the price. I, I oh, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> we live in a world where you just you just took the over on twenty eight total million for Scott Mayfield, and I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> you're like, yeah, uh, well, of course. That's a, that's a that's a very reasonable reasonable stance to take. My, He's tall. What are you going to do? My, my favorite part of that is I, I referred to him as a secret top pair defenseman. And there's some people in the comments being like, you're ridiculous for saying that. And it's just like, go sort the Islanders ice time the last two years by five on five yeah, average. Some, like, He's a top pair me, defenseman now. Mm-hmm. Ah. Let me let me show you how to sort by time on ice. And you will, <laughs> you'll, be forced to, you'll be forced to agree with us. Um, so looking ahead to the offseason, do you have a pick for like most fascinating, most interesting team going into the summer? Well, and, and, and specifically, because I know you and Julian wrote about the 
outrights the long shot futures mm-hmm. um, for the Stanley Cup. So in that context, is there a team that interests you the most? A team with value that most interests you? Because we spend a lot of our first segment breaking it down. Mm-hmm. I kind of like the Wild. I like the Wild Ooh, at plus thirty thousand. Uh, sorry, what Is are that they? Crazy. So you were doing, you were using MGM. So what were they? Plus two thousand. They're plus three thousand. Oh yeah, so thirty to one. Yeah, that's. I, I don't think that's. I don't think that's wild. Shall we say? Like, I think that's. I think. I think there's a lot of those thirty to one tier teams that like interest yep. me more than the teams in the late, late teens from a from a gambling perspective. A hundred percent. That was that was my thought when I was looking at the odds last night. Like. I mean, there's lots of lots of 16, 18 teams. I'm just like, eh, whatever. But then you, you get a little further down, things get interesting. What about you the? Know, I, uh... like, and I know, I know the Wild have have the cap, the cap stuff about to hit the fan. But if they can figure out what to do with Gustafson and, and you know, whatever, just uh, piece stuff together elsewhere. I, I think it's. I, I think I still think that's an in, an interesting group. I, you know, you have to you have to make it to the second round to to win the Stanley cup. So maybe I'm, you know, setting up a roadblock for myself immediately here, but in terms of value, I, I like that one. And I think, I think a couple of the young teams down at 40 to one are, are solid too. I like Ottawa and Buffalo at mm. 40 to one. You want to, you want to have some fun, throw a couple bucks on, you know, a breakout team like that. I think you could do a lot worse than that. How about the, uh, the Kyle Dubas penguins at 35 to one. I'm trying not to like go into full Homer mode and just talk about how interesting I think the, I think the Dubas Penguins are, but it seems a little low, right? Like I don't know. I, I feel like, like a... I would throw them in there. With, if I, I feel like you could put them in a in a group with the Wild to to me, like like so whatever thirty to one, I'd be less interested. But thirty five to one, I don't know, man. I'm I'll take. I'll take uh, Kyle Dubas trying to build out a roster with with Sidney Crosby still as like a 90-95 point player at the top of it. Sure, I don't know who's going to play goal. That's probably that's the problem. But whatever, thirty five to one is interesting there. Who even cares? As the Vegas Golden Knights showed us, who cares who plays goal? Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just get just like just just get five okay dudes and roll the ball to the middle of the court and just say like, all right, you guys you guys fight it out. Whoever whoever gets hot, you know. It will, so it's, this it's, is it's your job. I wonder. I wonder if we'll f- start to see teams do something like pay a one A guy, you know, three and a half, four million, whatever, and mm-hmm. then instead of paying one back up two million, why not pay three guys one point five million? Right, one like if you're a big budget team, pay th- three guys 1.5 million, sign them to two years of term so that they can clear waivers relatively uh, freely, and then just let them duke it out. Four guys. I, I I love it. Like have four viable options. Spread it. You know, you you want to have one guy who in a perfect world would be your goaltender, right? Like yeah. this year that, that that would have been Logan Thompson. Right. He's hurt. So what's the contingency plan? You have three guys that are just you know okay to varying degrees coming coming into the season you say like all right let's see let's see what happens i think that's a way more economical way to do it than overpaying on a backup just because you want a backup who makes two and a half million dollars i think i think that happens more than people even realize like you're like it's just a slotting system where you're like all right we need a backup to make x because that's how much our backup makes and mm-hmm. like, oh, that might not be the best way to spend your money so spread it out a little bit maybe get one other viable option in there because who the hell knows with goaltending and you know see what happens yeah and from a cap perspective i mean 
You're going to spend median median backup goaltender costs you two million, probably going to be two and a half, yep. maybe more uh, by by July second. Um, you know, might as well spend two million on three guys, right? One point five plus the cap holds totally. in the A. Anyway, here's my here's my favorite of that thirty range. I just want to throw this at you. Me and Dimitri are going to get mm-hmm. it, uh, into it too on the um, at at one p.m. If for those of us listening to Sportsnet six fifty, Buffalo Sabers thirty three to one. Almost thirty totally. million. Almost, totally. almost I, thirty I, million I, in I cap space. Connor Hellebuck, I, I come got, on down. Let's go. He's there. The spot for him, right? Right. Like, I, like it seems like it seems like it makes too much sense. I know Max Bolton on, on the podcast yesterday, like brought up brought up a specific trade where they were like, he was like, send back Matt Savoy. Matt Savoy played in Winnipeg. Like he's he's a he's a guy who checked some boxes for them. I'm like, all right, let's get specific. Let's do this. I mentioned. I, I think. I think I mentioned them when we were talking about it before. MGM had them at forty to one last night. Like, yeah. get, like let's go for it. Like that's what I'm saying. Throw, throw some cash down on on a team like that because at least at least they're fun and new and young, and you'll feel better about wasting your money if that's, if that's <laughs> what it comes down. To. And yeah, exactly. If if the worst case scenario is you end up having to watch Tage Thompson, you know, pick his teeth totally. with NHL defensemen for fifty games, you'll you'll at least enjoy yourself. Um, and you're right. The Buffalo Sabres have lots of players that Winnipeg can trap, which, of course, mm-hmm. they need to do. They don't need to acquire players. They need to trap Absolutely. players. Absolutely. Hey, Sean, Absolutely. appreciate and the then, time, and, man. Oh. And the other thing, the, the other thing, you can spend, you, you throw down some money now. You can root for them to do something crazy during the offseason. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool. always a good spot to be in. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it, man. All right, boys. Thank you. That is Sean Gentelli, our pal from The Athletic, covering the NHL, talking Stanley Cup final a little offseason and uh, looking ahead to the futures as well for next year. And uh, as we were talking about, you know, your your Scott Mayfield point, and we got a couple of texts in, one just saying Myers is taller than many, taller than almost everyone in the NHL, in fact. Is he the tallest player now that Um, Char is retired? I think he is. I think he is. I think he is. Yeah, so there you go. Who else would even be an option? Well, like Carlo? Tage, Tage Thompson. Tage Thompson. is 6'7". Uh, you know, it's really wild for a, a skilled centerman to be that size. Like, it's that is, completely insane. That is extraordinarily <laughs> rare. How tall is Zadorov? No, not not Tyler Myers' height. Yeah. But Zadorov also brings the chaos. Yeah. Zadorov, Alexiak, and Myers all bring the chaos. It's so good. <laughs> anyway, it's a good point. Tyler Myers, I mean, you want a tall drink of water. He, he's he's a tall drink of water. Dom uh, Producer Dom says Andre Suster. He's not even in the league. Like He's like an AHL guy, though, is he not? Yeah, I guess he's 6'8". That makes sense. So he's the same. Listed at 6'8". So. I, don't, I don't. Andre Suster's, like, totally fine. I think he could right. be an NHL player. I like him. Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not anointing a, him, my guy. I was, just, I was like, this is not where I was expecting the show to no, go. Totally he was fine. a he was a big hot commodity uh, NCAA free agent. I remember the teams were I really really excited. I wouldn't about. say hot. He was like the top guy in the class that year. Yeah, I know, but it was like the year after Justin Schultz, and we all kind of knew by from the his way, scoring rates that it wasn't much. We have to um, we have to update our list of like successful recent NCAA free agents. Zach Whitecloud. Oh, Zach Whitecloud, as amazing. Like, as you know, if you're talking about okay, what's the best case scenario look like for a guy? You got to throw him on the list now. Whitecloud's another one of those guys too, who's leveled up at a at to a rate that I didn't expect. Like I remember watching him in the bubble before he got that extension, and I thought his decision making was a little bit spotty, and that he played a, a physical game that sometimes got him out of position, out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, reminded me almost like um, 
like a higher event guy, like, you know, more a young Brent Sopel than a young Kevin Bieksa, who had, like, really solid defensive instincts, even mm-hmm. if you noticed the turnovers and stuff on occasion. Um, but White Cloud's become, like, a legit lockdown responsible yep. guy. And, and I really think the pairing of him and Haig, which so often drew the toughs all playoffs long, like, that's the hidden engine. That's the secret engine. That's the Ham Hughes Bieksa of this Vegas Golden Knights machine. Um Really, really amazing stuff from them, from that yeah. pair, and and from White Cloud in particular. Yeah, anyways, I love him. He's we, a great he's player, an incredible player, and seems like an awesome dude too. It was cool to see him talk after, uh, after winning. But and yeah, he's not one of my guys. He's become something I didn't expect throw based him, on my live. Throw viewings. him on the list of you know, what's what's the best case scenario, and that's a really good one. It's yeah. a really good one to have there on the uh, NCAA free agent resume. Uh, we'll take a break. Sam Cosentino, more draft talk coming up next. It is the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet six fifty. Get smarter when you listen to Hockey Talk, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined as always by Thomas Trance. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, it is officially the offseason in the NHL here. The Stanley Cup has been awarded. We are exactly two weeks away from round one of the NHL entry draft on June 28th down in Nashville. The Canucks, of course, currently sitting with pick 11. We will see if that's where they end up picking. Uh, we will see who's on the board when they, if and when, they end up picking uh, at that spot. Sam Cosentino of Sportsnet is going to join us uh, in just a moment here, of course, doing uh, doing great work covering the draft and NHL prospects for Sportsnet. So we'll talk to him about uh, some Canucks things and also just in general how he sees the first round after, you know, pick four, let's say, shaping up because – uh, we're still very much – I think we have a pretty good handle on what the first four picks are going to be in some order, right? We all know it's going to be Vidard. Almost certainly Fantilli strongly looks like it's going to be Leo Carlson uh, and Will Smith off the board after that. Then I think we might know some of the names that we expect to go next, but the order, could, could people jump up? Then it starts to get really interesting, and obviously, you know, how those next four or five picks go will have a huge impact on what the uh, – the Canucks are able to do eventually with their first round pick. So excited to get uh, Sam Cosentino's perspective on that. And uh, we're in the point now where, yeah, things can change quickly, but you know, the, the, the Stanley cup has been awarded. The combine has happened. Like this should be the time now where we start to get a bit of a better picture about what different teams are thinking uh, going into round one of the draft. After, you know, the bachelor, competition that is the nhl combine people start to connect the dots and you'll start to see you know the mock drafts from some of the industry leaders whether it's sam constantino or um or or pronman 
um, you know, begin to sort of solidify. And then, and then there's obviously a curveball or, or a disturber, mm-hmm. as Jason Buchla would put it, that, mm-hmm. that can change things the day before, right? Like it wasn't until the day before that Slavkovsky going right. first became evident. And then that has sort of ramifications. But this is the time of year when mock drafts, it feels like begin to take on a little bit yep. more weight now that everyone knows who took who out for dinner. In Buffalo. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that a lot more with our guy, Sam Cosentino, Sportsnet draft analyst. Sam, thanks very much for doing this, man. How are you? Yeah, my pleasure. I'm doing well, thanks. How's everything going over there? Uh, we're doing very well. As I said, two weeks out from the draft, uh, Canucks sitting at number 11 right now, so very exciting. Uh, I can only imagine this is the, the busiest two-week push of the year for you, it must be, huh? Yeah, it sure is, and uh, I'm in constant contact. In fact, I just got a, off a couple of calls with one of your regular guests there and Jason Buchla. We're, we're talking every day about stuff all the time. And yep. Got to do it quite a bit here over the co- couple of days at the Combine, which was uh, super, super enjoyable. So I was just saying before we got you on the line, I feel like, you know, nothing's ever certain until it actually happens. But there's right now it's very much pointing in the direction of Bedard, Fantilli, Carlson, and then maybe Will Smith kind of being f- the first four off the board. Potentially the guy who could disrupt that is Matt Bay Mitchkov, but we have I think there's a lot of uncertainty around him. What's your as of right now, I know this is a very, very difficult uh, question to pinpoint, but what's your sense of how long Mitchkov is gonna last and where could where a landing spot for him could be? There's three landing spots that I'm looking at inside the top ten for Mitchkov. And the first one would be at number six, Arizona, because they pick again at twelve and then with them really not having a home and, 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 you know, being, being uh, without a place to play after next year, they have the timeline that they could wait on the contractual situation. If you believe that the contractual situation is your biggest stumbling block. Okay. So that's, that's part of it. The next I would look at is Washington at eight. And that's for obvious reasons. The connection to Ovi might eradicate any other issues, including, and maybe even including the contract issues. And the next one I'd look at after that would be number nine at Detroit, where Steve Eiserman has had, uh, you know, and played with a lot of Russian players and won with a lot of Russian players and, and someone I believe has good contacts over there, which also might help eradicate some of the issues in bringing that player over here. And I guess the third destination, and I have, my brain's a little scrambling right now, but I think St. Louis is picking at 10. They have three first rounders. Who knows? Maybe that's a road they go down. So I'm looking at six. Six, eight, and nine as being my most likely destinations for him. What do you expect out of Detroit here, Sam? Because they've got five picks in the top 45, and they've had no draft lottery luck. And ever since the Heronic deal, I've kind of been eyeing Iserman's draft capital and wondering if he just goes pure home run cuts uh, across five picks to try and offset sort of the lack of you know, the, the Stamkos Hedman a- analogs that his uh, Detroit project has been able to find. Yeah, and, and I could see that happening with one of the picks. I don't think that's something that you, you have to do at nine. So if he goes the way of Mitchkoff, then I'm sure Steve would be pretty uh, confident that he's getting the player here and getting them earlier than what his contract says. But at that nine spot, let's say they don't go down the road of Mitchkoff and Washington takes him at eight. There, there are too many good players there where you can still have home run potential mm. and pick a player that, you know, fills need as well. So those, those two options are going to be available to him. Like, who's that going to be? Is it going to be a, 
the Samuel Hanzik? Is it going to be a Tom Lander? Is it going to be an Axel Sandin Palika? You know, is it going to be a Ryan Leonard if he if he slips down there? So they're going to have a ton of options at number nine. I wouldn't expect that that home run cut, that high risk reward type of player to be selected there. But when you have four more in the in the next uh, whatever thirty eight picks or whatever it is after that, then you can start thinking home run uh, home run there. And I do believe that down in that area there are some home run guys because you're looking at some smallish type of forwards and a big group of them. And I think some of those players are going to slide. And I do think some of them have home run potential. One of those players, presumably Zach Benson, who's the official favorite draft prospect of this particular program. Um, What do you think? (laughs) Could he slide and be available to the Canucks at 11? Are you hearing of any interest between uh, or interest that the Canucks might have in a, in a smaller winger given their significant team needs down the middle and on defense. Yeah. And so that would, I think, I don't think that's a fit for me there. I I love Benson too. Like he just comes in with a smile on his face. He's had to carve out minutes, you know, amongst a couple of other high end prospects on his own team in Winnipeg yet on many nights, he's the best of, of everybody in that group. And he's kind of got a cool background story, you know, with how he bounced around as a kid going to different hockey camps while his parents were, were running uh, circuses and carnivals. So you have to love that. For me, I don't see him as a fit there um, with, with the Vancouver Canucks. You know, whether it's down the middle or just uh, someone that possesses a little more size. And who knows, maybe, you know, there's so much talk about the back end last year to just, you know, was that short up enough? I mean, you look at what Columbus has done in, in the acquisition of two defensemen lately. I, I think Vancouver could probably stand to do something along those lines. And so maybe it's uh, the, the way of a defenseman. You know, speaking of defensemen, it seems, again, pretty likely that, uh, that David Reinbacher is going to be the first guy off the board at that position somewhere in the top 10. Do you think we could see a second defenseman go in the top 10 this year? And, and who's kind of the odds on favorite from your perspective to be that second defenseman taken in the draft? Well, I'm looking at the three guys and I do believe Reinbacher is going to be the first one. And I think he enters the conversation as early as Montreal at number five. If not, then he becomes a target for Arizona at six, right on down through. So who would the next one be after that? Sandine Palika has been the guy who's had a, such a high rise and he's performed well in all the international events where the most eyes have been on him. Um, but I think Tom Willander is really, he's really kind of up the ante here and he's, he's upped his game. And I think he really uh, would have benefited from people getting the opportunity to meet him at the combine. I know um, I was really impressed with how we walked away from our interview with him. Um, and that's to take nothing away from Sandine Palika because I thought his interview was amazing too. I just thought Willander had a little bit more edge to him and, and I like how, how much thought has gone into his development rather than kind of bounce around a couple of different leagues. Like you often see with Swedish players in the J20, the J teams and Elsvensk and SHL. There's, there's a lot of bumping around there um, where Willander feels that going to BU is going to give him his best opportunity to, to develop and prepare him for the national hockey league. So I, I like that thought process behind him. Those would be the three guys. I do think there is a bit of a gap after that to the next best set of D. And for those three guys, uh, you know, being being right shot guys is definitely uh, added value. 
So, I mean, we've heard Vlander linked to the Canucks a lot. You know, we heard the report that they took him out to dinner at the Combine in Buffalo. Is there a chance, though, like, is there a decent chance that he's not even there at 11, that he gets snapped up before they step up? Yeah, there is that. That possibility exists for sure, right? So here's the, you know, you have to consider, um, I, I honestly think where Mitchkoff goes is going to help dictate that. So if he's going inside of that top 10, you know, that pushes people down a little bit. Um, and if you truly believe that Ryan Bacher is the first guy to go, you know, and now we've talked about the, the Smiths, the Carlsons, the Fantillies and the, and the Bedards. Now you're starting to see that group shrink a little bit and now you're getting down the list in a hurry. So it wouldn't be inconceivable that uh, Willander or, um, or Sandy Palika end up going uh, inside the top 10. I don't think both, I don't think both of them will. But I have a hard time seeing those three defensemen still around after pick 15. Sam, how conscious should the Canucks be about team need, um, given you know how frequently we see mistakes being made on the draft floor as a result of a team, you know, whether it's Detroit passing on Quinn Hughes because they've got you know, Philip Peronic and, and a bunch of other um, puck-moving D or, you know, a- Arizona, same draft with Hayton. Um, can this team afford to draft for need given just the talent pool in general but uh, beneath the NHL level? Yeah, and listen, like every every GM's always taking the best player available. I, <laughs> I believe that about – honestly, I believe that probably 40% of the time. Mm. I think in a lot of situations, especially picking where Vancouver's picking and the depth of this draft, you can actually address both needs. I, I strongly believe that. Now, if they feel a heavy need for defense and all three of those guys that we just talked about are gone, well, then obviously, you know, you know there's going to be a change, change of course there. And then you probably really are 100% devoted to next play, best player available. But, you know, when you look at how it shakes down, and I do believe there is a big gap after those three defensemen. If defense is what you need, and those guys are really good players, and they possess a little bit more size, at least in the part of Willander, a little bit more size than what you would in the smallest forward, then I think all the, all the signs point to going down that road. So I think where Vancouver's picking at 11, you can do both. I, I believe that's a possibility. Uh, the other position, of course, we've heard them connected with and is definitely a need in their system is at center. One of the names that's popped up, uh, Nate Danielson. I know there's a bit of a, a, di- a divide, at least from what I read, in terms of what his ultimate upside is. What do you see as, uh, you know, is there enough skill there to potentially be a second-line center? Does he fit more in that third-line center mold long-term for you? I do think there's enough skill there for me, but I also think that the ceiling for that to happen isn't isn't quite as high so i look at danielson as what people would call a safe pick he's got a b game and that b game will allow him to play in any circumstance on any team at any time third line checking role playing the pk and if you are uh uh you know uh, fortunate enough to get the offensive upside that comes along with that now you're probably looking at a 2c me i haven't projected as a 3c that's fine Look at the Seattles of the world and the Vegases of the world, how important a 3C is to long-term sustainable success. It's super, super important. Now, do you want to be drafting that at 11 in this deep draft class when there might be a little bit more risk-reward with a smaller type of player? 
you know, that's something that, that the Canucks are going to have to kind of work their way through. So for me, probably a little bit aggressive for Danielson there at 11. Um, but I'd be, you know, I, I'd be okay with the pick. I mean, you know, I, Ivan Barbashev is a really interesting guy for me, right? Now we're not talking about the same position, mm-hmm. but we're talking about a guy who's essentially a third-line guy. That acquisition, though, for Vegas, what he did for St. Louis when they won the Cup, it's pretty hard to deny his impact in a lineup. So you're not looking at a guy who, you know, was a, I think he was the top end of the first round, and you're saying, oh, well, you know, we're, we're not getting the value or the point production we expected out of him. In the grand scheme of things, you're getting out of that player what you would expect for a mid-first-round pick. So guys like Barbashev have that kind of value. Now, that's not to say that Danielson brings the physicality that Barbashev brings to the table, but I think he can bring some of the other elements in terms of being able to repel that physicality, being a guy who can match up well, and, and also being a guy that might be, have a little bit more upside than where Barbashev is. Not much, but some. So, again, yeah, there's so many things to consider here, um, you know, when, when picking there. And ultimately what it might come down to Vancouver is who's left with what's picked in front of them. A few more minutes here with uh, Sportsnet draft analyst Sam Cosentino on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 as we uh, run through just some of the names we've heard connected to the Canucks, especially at the Combine. Another one, Nanaimo product Matthew Wood and – you know, when you look at the size, the hands, the skill, the production, is that does, does that is that the kind of pick that would be, you know, a home run swing, right? You're betting on the upside and the uh, the potential future there with Wood? Yeah, and, and I would agree with that. And now that's a little bit more along the lines of what you're thinking when you're thinking about a higher ceiling. So if you're Vancouver, are you going to be patient enough to wait for that? A couple more years in college, potentially, uh, and then move forward from there into the American League? or a guy that you think you can get signed right away and then make a decision as to what you'd want him to do, you know, go to Regina and play with the Pats and sort of take Connor Bedard's place or, or get him into the American league right away. But he has that kind of upside to him. So I think he's definitely within that range. Um, you know, his ability to shoot the puck, what he did with as a, uh, you know, as a freshman at UConn is really, really impressive stuff. I think just one point under a point per game, uh, and then, of course, you get the recency bias of how well he played for Canada at mm. the under-18s, especially in that championship game. And now, now you're 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 talking business. So I, I believe that he would be a target there for Vancouver. Yes. A couple other Vancouver products um, in this draft class with the potential to go in the first round. Although in the case of uh, Andrew Crystal, it does feel like his draft stock has softened a bit in the wake of the U18s. Uh, what range do you expect Crystal and Lucas Dragasevich to end up falling in? Will the, um, <laughs> excuse me, the uh, 05 class of, of the Vancouver Vipers have five first-round <laughs> picks in Nashville? Yeah. I have both of those guys in a very similar range, and that would probably be in the 28 to 40 range for both of those players. I think with Crystal, it got exposed a little bit on the big ice. The feet you worry about, you worry about his play away from the puck defensively. Is he going to be able to handle some of those responsibilities? And, they, and, and what we talk about a lot with this draft class are the size issues. Now, from the blue line in, 
there's not too many players better than what Andrew Crystal is. And when you get an opportunity to meet him, he has an infectious personality mm. that I think would be really important and can rub off in a room. And I don't think you can discount that. Dragosevich is an interesting guy. You know, he's still battling. Not, I don't want to say battling, but he's still uh, processing the, the, the move from forward to defense. Yep. And that happened just a couple of years ago. He's always around the rink. Uh, and again, talking to him at the Combine, He's addressing that situation with two different skating coaches, um, and that's something that's going to have to get better in his game. But, listen, a 27-game point streak for a defenseman, you know, there's obvious upside there. And with his 70, I think, four or five points he had there with the Tri-City Americans, you can't turn a, a blind eye to that either. So the skating is the one thing that's holding him back, as it is with Crystal. Uh, but again, when you're looking at offensive upside for both of those players, now you're talking about hovering between what I expect would be the, that, you know, that 28 to 40 range. Sam, really appreciate it as always. Uh, I know these are, as I said, the busiest weeks of the year for you. So thanks for making time. And uh, I look forward to seeing you on the, uh, on the TV for the draft in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks. Very kind. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, keep talking about it here for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. We got a lot of shows to fill, so we will absolutely be doing that, Sam. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I think <laughs> that's Sam Cosentino, Sportsnet draft analyst. Yeah, you don't need to tell us twice. You don't need to tell us twice, Sam. Uh, the Canucks are picking eleven. We're going to be talking about the draft and what's going on at the draft and who they're taking out to dinner and who they're not taking out to dinner and who we think they should draft based on zero live viewings. <laughs> at least, at least we're honest about it. Well, no, and also it's not zero, but it's, like, pretty close. I've, I've I mean, been, for me it is. I, I didn't go to any dub games this year. I, I saw a few of these guys a few times. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, fundamentally, I didn't see a lot of them. And I don't pretend to be an amateur prospect. There's all this, like, pushback on, like, you don't know. And it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, it's fun to talk about and have thing. opinions. It's that's sports, man. It's sports talk radio. Everyone is gambling. But also, here's on the thing. This. You know, but, but, like, seriously, we're talking about projecting yeah. 17-year-olds five years out, like, you can have a $3 million amateur yeah. scouting budget, and you're still guessing. You're still guessing. Like, it's to fun. A, to a significant degree. And if you're sitting around with your buddies at the bar in the backyard, guess what? You all have opinions about who the Canucks should Seriously. Draft, right? And that's, that's look, again, we're being honest about it. I'm not, yeah. not going to sit here and break down the, uh, you know, the intricacies of Zach Benson's game. All I can go on is what I hear from people around the industry who are public, you know, public prospect guys who I – respect and I've read their work for a number of years so I kind of have a rough idea about you know what they like and what they look for in a prospect that's that's what I'm going on that's what most people are going on but guess what you can still have an opinion uh, and you can still have some fun talking about it and debating it if that's what you're going on and, and, I, and I, I just go off scoring profiles yeah, that's a huge part of it in combination with private conversations with my scouting contacts around the league yep. and it's like okay I have a good sense of I think anyway who I like, who I trust, who I don't, mm -hmm. and I think data helps you ask good questions and get a sense of it. But you know, that doesn't mean you should take anything to the bank. Just have fun with it, and if you don't like it, you don't like it. It's it's not a big deal. I don't think it's any different than us being like, this guy shouldn't play on this line. Like you know what else I've never done? Coached a hockey team, but I still have takes on it. It's the it's what we do. It's the lifeblood of the industry. Yeah. Um, the point I, I raised there with uh, with Sam as well. I'm really, really curious to see where that second defenseman goes. Like that's that's well, my big so, it, Mitchkov and and where the second defenseman goes are my two biggest so questions. I, I, you you know draft. me and my fantasy football analogies. Love yep. them. You do. 
it's like a super flex league. Okay, it's like you're playing in a super flex league, mm-hmm. and there's a QB run right off the hop. Mm-hmm. Like you're sitting in eight, and there's a QB run right off the hop. So maybe you're not getting QB one, but guess what? You're getting Jefferson or McCaffrey. Right. Like that's a win. You know, like. If oh, the, if, I'm not saying I'm worried that the Canucks no. are going to miss out on the second defenseman. I'm like, I'm saying, kind of fingers crossed. That's that's, that's, the, that's where thinking. that's where yeah. the Canucks should be. If the Canucks are lucky enough that three defensemen slide into a top ten, in which truly, max, one defenseman should be drafted in the top fifteen of this draft. Mm-hmm. If three are off the board by the time the Canucks pick, that is fabulous because that means multiple of that Leonard, Mitchkov, yep. Benson. Tier Dvorsky. Yeah. Oh man, and I mean Dvorsky might be uh, like other. Th- Dvorsky's not a Benson caliber prospect, but like next up, mm-hmm. I mean that guy's a monster. That would be a that's a home run. That's throw a parade down Robson territory. And you really start to get if only even if let's say let's say and I know Sat was talking. You know the the Red Wings took Vialander out for dinner. Maybe Devay like him potentially at nine if if you know Mitchkov isn't there. For, for example, like even if what I've heard the Blues and Axel Sandy and Palika linked, even if one of those guys goes ahead of the Canucks, though, you're talking then you know about a pretty good chance that again someone like Leonard or Benson falls or Dvorsky right? or, or Dvorsky, you know. So it, it doesn't even have to be all three of the defensemen going right. Even no. if it's Reinbacher and one other who go in the top ten, you, you're going to start to push a really good prospect down, and that that's the number one question for me is it does somebody because of the you know constant demand for defensemen does somebody else in the top 10 step up and say we have to do it here right who's, and how does that shape what the Canucks do who's picking Zaboral who's picking Zaboral indeed that's honestly that's like the way to think of it like one of these teams is going to pick Zaboral and then there's going to be a run of like Barzell Connor yeah Besser and that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping for Konechny I'm hoping the uh, the Canucks are right in that run <laughs> that'd be great right in that run and there's Never, ne- like, in general, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen this year, but if you were going to bet, like, should a defenseman go too high? Should the, you know what I mean? Should the second defenseman oh, in the draft go too high? Like, it, there's a decent chance it happens. That I mean, the only thing I'd, the only other thing I'd say is, like, three defensemen go, and then you still have a chance to select the best one. <laughs> in Dmitry Samashev. <laughs> like, this draft, it, honestly, the more I think about it, the more 11 is an okay spot to land, even though, boy, oh, boy, if you're in seven... And you're having the Benson and Reinbacher conversation. Mm. You're you're feeling a lot well, better than the Danielson Villander conversation. If you're in seven, it's it's like Benson, maybe Reinbacher, maybe not Dvorsky. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's, like that's the tier. Instead, it's Danielson, Villander, and, and fingers crossed that one of the other guys falls. That's yeah, what it comes yeah. down to. So right? I mean, there is there is a real cost to that. Um, six fifty, six fifty is the Dunbar Lumber text. We got to talk inbox. Ethan Bear on the other oh, side. Oh yeah, we'll talk a little bit Ethan Bear. Uh, some other uh, Stanley Cup final stuff I want to get into, but we will talk about Ethan Bear. Uh, so that is coming up. It is Canucks talk here on Sportsnet six fifty. <laughs> Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strands here, live from the Kintech studio. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Um, lots to get into here. Final segment. Uh, again, beginning, official beginning uh, really, of the NHL offseason with the Stanley Cup being handed out last night and a little bit of Canucks news 
to get into as well. Unfortunately, not of the positive variety. Uh, Canucks defenseman Ethan Bear, this is reported uh, per our friend Rick Dollywall at uh, Donnie and Dolly, uh, reporting that Ethan Bear is going to have surgery on the uh, the shoulder injury that he picked up at the World Championships. Uh, and then it sounds like four to five months of rehab required for Ethan Bear after that surgery, uh, which would put his return sometime mid-October to mid-November, potentially. Uh, and, of course, you remember the, the initial reporting from uh, Rick Dollywell that surgery was one option, but there was the potential option to rehab without surgery. So here's Ethan Bear taking the surgery option. And, I mean, first of all, really tough break for Ethan Bear, who goes over to represent his country at the World Championships, doesn't play in the final, but helps them win a gold medal over there. He's an RFA. It's a difficult situation to do that in. Now he picks up this injury. Uh, and, I mean, Again, first and foremost, difficult for Ethan Bear, but then there's also the question of, you know, he's a pending RFA who doesn't have a contract for next year. What does that mean for him and for the Canucks going into the summer? Yeah, and I'm sure there was insurance involved. Uh, I don't know the specific details. I'll, I'll make some calls. But the fact is, is that this is a tough blow. And and May, May, although, you know, given how highly rated he seems to be by Canucks management, I'm sure this isn't one of those do they qualify him now situations, but you know, it's worth unpacking from that perspective. It's, it's also worth unpacking that, look, this was a player, the Canucks were like, we were probably slotting into the Canucks top four. hundred percent. Who's now not available for the first month of the season. Probably. Yeah. Or at the very least based on the four to five month timeline. And you never know, right. With NHL players, they get back early. It goes well, whatever. But if you're working off a four to five month timeline, you're looking at no training camp, no preseason. Yeah, you don't. That's wanna, what you're. You don't want to come back early from a. You no. don't want to come back early from an injury that wipes out your summer. You know, it's one thing to get injured like in season when mm -hmm. you've like gone through training camp. You know, how many examples have we heard over just the last few years of guys who had injuries mess up their summers in Vancouver? Right, like it's happened a lot. Elias Pettersson, Brock Besser, like go down the list of guys who got off to a slow start because of injuries suffered towards the end of the previous season and what it does to your summer and your summer workout and your summer regimen. Right, like it's a it's a really significant thing to be coming back. Ekman Larson, Ekman Larson at the Worlds right? last year. Yep. It's a it's a tough obstacle for a player and well and make no mistake like you know you don't qual if you decide not to qualify Ethan Bear that's 2.2 million in cap space that's mm -hmm. now open and i mean look that I don't, for me that's not more tempting than in my view anyway protecting a guy who you think based on the quality of your group can probably play top pair top 4 minutes for you at least next season um you know i i think you tender the QO and sort of probably at this point he accepts it and it's kind of a one year you're kind of punting yeah. on the idea of going longer that's it that was my immediate reaction In, unless there's an agreement to be made out of the uncertainty that's a little more get the number down that's a, a little, little more team friendly so yeah. I, I mean that's another approach but it'll be fascinating to see how this impacts um talks how this impacts where the club and the player land uh, and obviously the impact the short-term impact for the canucks defense is hey this defense, which was already lean, mm -hmm. you know, I think one thing we felt, you know, not super comfortable with, but at least like, hey, like between Heronic Bear Hughes, you know, you've sort of got at least the building block of something that can maybe be average. Um, you know, you take that out and it's like, man, this is going to be really tough to figure out given the 
cost constraints and the cap situation that this team is dealing with. Well, and it'll be interesting to see how the team, again, this could be a very short-term injury. Right? This could amount to, you know, five missed games, six missed games. We'll see. Well, you know, exactly how it uh, shakes out for Ethan Bear. It'll be interesting to see how the team approaches the defensive depth and especially the right side defensive depth now because likely Ethan Bear was going to start the season on Quinn Hughes's pair, right? On the top pair, playing on the right side of Quinn Hughes. The good thing is that we've seen lots of different guys can do that job, right? So it's not as if you're you're worried about how you're going to cover that spot uh, for the first two or three weeks of the season, if that's what it turns out to be. But it does mean that you have to make sure you have, you know, if it's not Noah Juleson, who's a Group 6 UFA, like the next Noah Juleson, who's probably an AHL Abbotsford guy, but who you feel perfectly comfortable bringing up for uh, the beginning of the regular season and playing with Quinn Hughes, right? So it just adds, you know, you probably need to go find that guy. And again, that's doable. Got, those guys get signed all, uh, all the time, but... It opens up an immediate kind of spot for that type of player in training camp and in preseason next year. That's kind of my on-ice reaction. I mean, who knows? Like, does Jet Wu get a chance? Philip Johansson, right? Like, some of the young right-shot defensemen who are going to be in the mix at camp, does this give them an opportunity to kind of uh, get an NHL audition at the early part of next season? Oh, man. We're at that point in the offseason, eh? Is Jet, Woo, is Jet Wu or Cole McWard the answer? It's like, to what question? For the To the question of who can play three games for us at, at right shot defenseman. Or, yeah, and, and, you know the, what I mean? and the answer and, and is Jet, either of them. Jet Wu might be the answer to that. Well, either of them can. You know, you can probably put Jet Wu with Quinn Hughes and it'll be fine. Right? Just like, I, just like um, in the PDO cast coming up shortly because we pre-recorded it, um, Dimitri was joking about, Cody CC shaking loose out of Edmonton. Cody CC, a defense first, like totally reliable, big defense first, right handed mm -hmm. defenseman. I was like, he's like, you know, you probably want him playing third pair minutes, though. I was like, not in Vancouver. Not in Vancouver, baby. Play with Quinn Hughes. Cody CC would be Quinn Hughes' best partner since Tan have left. And like, not by a little bit. So, you know, Quinn Hughes opens up some options for the Canucks That's on the, the right thing. side. You know who looked really good? In a top pair role with Quinn Hughes, everybody who's ever done it. Jordy Ben on the right side, sure. Um, Noah Juleson, yep. Mm -hmm. Check. Like, you know, there. <laughs> Luke Shen also looked like a top pair quality guy though with Morgan Riley. So I think Luke Shen now has an asterisk on this. But yeah, right. I mean, but it's still true. It is still true. Anybody who does who does it, it'll work. So. Not anybody, but provided that you have like a baseline level of defensive awareness, with which Jet Wu absolutely has. I mean, you know, I think you can survive with it, but do I think it's good enough? Like, do I think that helps put Quinn Hughes in a position to succeed? Do I? Yeah, like, no, no. You ideally you want to be getting more than just good enough, right? Like, it's he's a security blanket, Quinn Hughes, right? Because you know you can just plug and play in there, but that's not the end goal, right? You want to be finding a, a chemistry and a partner that elevates his game, not just, you know, okay, well, we know you can make up for this. So you know how I keep talking about how we don't do a good enough job addressing downside risk? Sure. And and not just you and I, like, this isn't just like, mm -hmm. this is like self-evaluation. I don't do a good enough job addressing downside risk. I don't think sports media in general does. Like, we often lay out what it looks like if this works, and despite mm, being mm, called mm -hmm. negative all the time, we very rarely are like, this is what it looks like if it all goes badly. Um, and, and I think that's been to 
the detriment of the quality of analysis in this market, particularly given that the downside risk for this team just keeps paying off. Keeps happening. Yeah. So, you know, I think when we talk about the downside risk of the Canucks blue line or, or the fat part of the bell curve or the, or the upside, you know, a lot has been made about the upside case, right? Like Philip Peronik stabilizes mm-hmm. this puck moving, this team's puck moving ability, the defensive play, particularly the inability that other teams had to um, generate w- with down low passing. Once Rick Tockett took over was like a meaningful improvement. Christian Willannon showed that he can, you know, add some mobility and some, and some puck moving half to the Canucks back end. Um, Breezebois showed well, Jet Wu's coming, and has some real physical attributes and, and defensive awareness, plus the versatility to play both the left and the right side reliably. Uh, Tan- uh, Hiroshi, I want to call him Tanner Hiroshi, but that's his brother. Akito Hiroshi um, looked calm and comfortable, despite you know some underlying numbers that I think should mm-hmm. should be regarded as a real reality check on on how far ahead we get of ourselves in terms of Akito Hiroshi's probable impact next season. On and on, and. You know, I think discussing this in terms of a range of outcomes makes a lot of sense. And and I want to start with Philip Ronick, who we only saw play four games, and it feels to me like he's discussed as just like a checked box, first pair caliber defenseman. Um, and like Dom's model, ding, mm-hmm. regards him as, uh, you know, a five, like a, a, a you know, five um game score value added player which is a top pair defenseman but and we learned this with jt miller last year dom's model so heavily weights the most recent year of performance from a player mm-hmm. as opposed to doing what i do just as a sort of back of the napkin thing where i look at larger samples and have like very very firm priors well and also i mean i think especially with defensemen we know that fit is so important Right, and we totally. you just point to example after example in oh. recent NHL history, but even recent like, Canucks history. Oh, I was just gonna say a Canuck example, like Nate Schmidt. Well, so I was about to say the exact same name. Nate Schmidt was a really good defenseman. He was a really good defenseman in Vegas, and I was watching him at training camp. And I even wrote an article. You can go find it. I was watching him at training camp work in a scrimmage in which he was on the same team as the Lotto line, mm-hmm. and Quinn Hughes was on the same team as like the Bo Horvat, Tanner Pearson, Niels Hoaglander line. Mm-hmm. And, like, it felt like he had immediate chemistry with, like, Pedersen and Miller. And that line, they scored, like, four goals in the scrimmage. And I was just like, oh, my God. This like, that is was a, unbelievable. That was, that was, like, a great trade. It should have been a great trade. Like, he had that upside. And you're like, oh, my gosh, he's going to be a great fit. He's exactly what they need yeah, on this and team. It, and it just didn't just work. Wasn't. It just didn't work. He just wasn't. Right? And, again, I think that, like, in Matthias fact, it Eckholm was, is it the was, opposite example. It was right? a brutal fit. You know, Matthias Eckholm going from Anaheim to – Or not Matthias Eckholm, uh, Lindholm. Sorry, Hampus Lindholm going oh, from Anaheim to – Oh, I think Matthias Eckholm uh, well, a really good example, but too. But Eckholm was – is was great in Nashville. It was really good in Nashville, too. For sure. You know but, what I mean? But, I mean people... Lindholm, it was like, oh, my gosh, this guy, look at his numbers. They're horrible. And then he goes to Boston, and he's a Norris candidate. People are know? ignoring, though, that in a quarter of the season after the Edmonton Oilers acquired Ekholm, they lost three games. Yeah, they were outrageous. <laughs> they were outrageous. <laughs> they lost three good. games and then were the toughest out for Vegas yeah. in the playoffs. I mean, uh, you know, people, people might but be the, sleeping the on the The point Oilers. is, like, the, the defenseman-changing team thing, I think it's – it's a lot bigger deal than, like, a goal-scoring winger changing teams. Not that there's not fit questions with that, but I just think we've seen enough examples that – and it cuts both ways. Sometimes you're going to get a lot better, 
than what the defenseman was doing with his old team, and sometimes it's going to be more of a struggle to fit. And we just we don't know the answer with Frona again. It could be the could be the positive side for all we know. Well, that's that's what I'm trying to talk about, right? Yeah. The range of outcomes. So. The thing about Hronik is even without accounting for the change of teams thing, because for me, the main impact of changing teams for a player like Hronik, particularly coming to Vancouver, where you've got Quinn Hughes locked in on PP1, is less opportunity to put up points is like absolutely in the fat part of the bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. Like we would expect Philip Hronik to not be a first choice PP1 guy unless Mm -hmm. they run 3-2, which would be um, tough to watch. So... That would be part of the fat card, part of the bell curve. Uh, here's where sort of the downside risk, though, for Heronic really worries me, is up until last season, Heronic has typically been like a minus value, game score value added guy, and the defensive metrics, the relative team relative defensive metrics, the usage, all of it paints the picture of a guy who when forced to play first pair minutes, gets caved in defensively. All of a sudden last year, he was like a credible defensive stopper. Mm -hmm. But that's out of line with what he's done for most of the past three, four years. In Vancouver, no matter how well or poorly he plays defensively, he's still going to be this team's second best defenseman. So there's this middle part of the bell curve case for Heronic's performance here where it's like production falls off a little bit because of lack of power play time but he still produces because this team scores and he's talented at moving the puck he logs the second most minutes on the team five on five or maybe the most should there be a Quinn Hughes injury or something like that over the course of the season and his defensive play his defensive gains from last season come back to earth maybe not entirely but somewhat Right, he's not like a a first pair caliber defensive contributor, but he's sort of a a fine. It's in the middle of where he was last year and the previous. Right, right, yeah, right. And here's the problem with with that set of circumstances: the fat part of the like. Would you consider that to be like a reasonable mid case yeah. outcome for Hronik next season? Here's the problem with that from a Canucks perspective: he's arbitration eligible. So if he logs that type of minutes and produces thirty five points. He strengthens his case, and yet playing in a high-visibility Canadian market, if his defensive play falls back to earth, that tanks his trade value. So you could be in this spot with an asset, like the mid-range outcome for Heronic results in this place where you bought high on a guy whose trade value tanks even as his negotiating leverage hardens. Yeah, over but the course it, of the year, it depends what actually happens with his defensive play, though. Like if it's well, I just said no, 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 but I, but like I don't think that. I don't think what you out- outlined in terms of like his defensive play regressing a little bit, but not all the way to what it once was. I don't think that tanks his trade value, dude. If he has a super strong his a, any guy with a super strong arbitration case who's not seen as a top pair caliber defenseman tanks his trade value. Okay, well that's different. That's his arb case doing it, not his defensive gaffes or whatever. No, right? but but if his if he maintains the defensive form that he showed, then the arb case isn't a big deal because he's such a good player. If the defensive case, if the defensive impact regresses, then the arb case becomes a problem, which tanks his trade value. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The I mid, see what you're the mid case, like the the fat part of the bell curve case, is is still really problematic, and and this is part of the you know I, I talk a lot about floor bets, ceiling bets, mm-hmm, stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. 
one thing that like as I think about what this Canucks season could look like that sort of troubles me is I really do think Hronik needs to hit something like the top 20th percentile outcome of his of his possible output and performance next season for that trade to not be deeply inconvenient at season's end. And and well, those are the types of bets that I just can't stomach and that this organization just keeps and making. And really with Hronik, you really – and. It, because of the power play situation, it probably ends up this way anyways if he does hit. But you want the the driver of his value to be on the defensive side, right? Because that, yes, it's the, the minute strengthens his arm case, but not as much as like a 55-point season would. You know mm. what I mean? If he was getting tons of power play time. So the, the ideal situation for the Canucks is like 30 points or whatever, right? Because he's still productive. But doesn't put up eye popping statistical numbers, but it's just really, really solid in a in a matchup role or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the bull case is Vancouver's answer to Brandon Montour, mm. right? Like that's what you're hoping for, where it's like you know this transformative secondary push in terms of getting your team up ice and scoring big goals and helping in big moments and also holding up defensively. Like that's the that's the bull case. The um... and and there's a real chance that that occurs like I, I think there's a real shot that he has that sort of impact even though I think he'll have that impact in a somewhat quieter way based on the style of game oh, he sure. plays he doesn't yeah. he doesn't carry no, no, no. the puck he's, with that level of aggressiveness the, yeah the skater he's not he's not the swashbuckling buckling type in the same way but a more restrained version of that type of impact I mean I think that's well within the realm of probability I just think the most likely the fat part of the bell curve for what Hronik mm. looks like in Vancouver next season to me is slight step back defensively, maintains offensive impact, fewer power play points. And and I just worry that ultimately that means that you're going to have a, a player whose overall value to the organization um, is complicated by a strong arb case and, and, and lowered trade value than, than what they paid for to acquire him. You know, just for five months ago. The the other thing I'm fascinated with with Ronick is what his usage and deployment looks like, and I mean part partly in terms of role and matchups, but also who he's playing with, right? Like that's a huge open question. I mean, obviously there's an appetite if somehow they were able to open up salary cap space to go add a defenseman who likely you would think the ideal would be a partner for Philip Ronick, but that's far from a sure thing, and. I mean, is there is there a, a situation where he ends up starting the year next to Oliver Ekman Larson, for example, right? Like, does do they ever throw him in Hughes on a pairing? I don't think they can do that because they need the hey, they you need the puck moving you, spread out. You got to do it when you trail, sure. But as and, a and as you, like a start of the game option, yeah, I, I yeah. think that's I don't. Think I, we see I also that. I also don't think that that's. Like, everyone can play with Quinn Hughes. They'd make it work. But I don't think either Bear or Heronik's an ideal fit for Hughes. Like I think it's I, diminishing returns, right? Yeah. I, well, I just, I think you want a guy who can um, stop the cycle as opposed to a guy whose primary value is puck moving because, you know, when Quinn Hughes is on the ice, what you literally want is someone who just efficiently filters the puck to him. Yes. Because he's the guy you want making the plays all over the ice, but especially on that left side half wall. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's where... That's but, where he but just a, cooks. A huge part of it, and again, to tie it back to, like, you never know what a defenseman's going to look like on a new team necessarily is because, well, who are they playing with and what role are they going to be asked to do? And if and if Philip Ronick is partnered with OEL, let's say, and asked to 
and they're asked to match up against other teams' top lines sometimes. Like, oh, that's, that's that's really really difficult. I, I don't like that for him at no, all. No, that's an ex- and that's nothing to do with Philip Ronick or his ability. No. That's just an extraordinarily difficult circumstance to be thrown no, into. You need you need Quinn Hughes doing the like Quinn Hughes' defensive game at this point has got to a level where he's the guy you want matching up against the opposition's best. Because even if there are the occasional defensive gaps or the occasional battle against a bigger forward that he might lose, first of all, he's not losing those anymore. He's in on guys' hands. Mm. He's taking the puck. But also, guess what? He's just going to have the puck the whole time. He can kind of defend like the Twins used to. Yeah. Where it's just like, LOL, your shift lasted 90 seconds and you barely had it. You know, enjoy your dump in and change, buddy. <laughs> that's that's like Quinn Hughes is... I, you know, Rick Tockett did it anyway. Like, I'm not even, I don't even think this is much like Rick Tockett knows what he has. And and so I don't think there's a lot of suspense here. Um, it's just about getting a, a partner who can help Quinn Hughes play that game. Mike and Willoughby texted in, uh, you have him with OEL. What, do you have, what did he ever do to you? That's cruel. I'm just, look at the, the left side depth chart for the Canucks right now, right? Like, as it currently stands, it's it's Hughes, it's OEL, well, and then you're talking, you know, Christian Willan and Guillaume Brisebois. So here, here's like if we play the bell curve upside downside case game, right? It's like, you know, I I don't the downside case for Hughes basically relies on injury, but mm. I think there's a meaningful downside case to be made for Hirose, certainly for OEL given the age concerns. The downside case for Ethan Bears like already hit. You know, you sort of go up and down the lineup and. I mean, I think the bell curves are, are a little bit too far to the left for me in analyzing the Canucks defense one through nine. Um, and that's sort of where clearing out cap space and upgrading, like get that move into the right, get some <laughs> less hopeful bets on these books here is such a crucial part of how this offseason plays out. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, a little bit of a different time. We're on at one. We're after the Blue Jays game. So tune in at one tomorrow for more Canucks talk here on Sportsnet 650.